John chapter 19, starting at verse 6. John chapter 19, verse 6. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the paratorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to, re- uh, to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Father, again, we just lift up this time in your word that you would bless us and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Pilate's dilemma, it continues as he tries to decide what to do with Jesus. As we closed last week, Pilate was presenting the scourged Lord to this Jewish crowd. We see it in verse 5. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When he said, Behold the man, the idea is, Look at this poor fellow. Look at this man. Look what, is, look what has happened to him. But then in verse 6, they smell blood, and we see this mob mentality starting to work. And it says, therefore, the chief priests and the officers saw him, and they cried out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Well, we know that this was what the crowd was doing as well. They're following their lead, and it's so easy to direct a crowd when you, again, have that mob mentality. We see that this was a manipulation in Matthew twenty-seven twenty. but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so this mob is beyond reason, and after years of Roman frustration, part of it too is they see an opportunity to exercise power or authority over Rome. But none of this is sitting right with Pilate. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Well, there's basically two reasons why they can't do that. Now, you've got to keep in mind, part of the reason we'll see is, is legal, but a big part of the reason is, is that God's plan has to come to fruition according to the desire of the Lord. Jesus Christ, his death, it has to match Scripture. It has to follow prophecy exactly. And so for the first reason why they cannot crucify Jesus Christ as far as the Jews do the actual crucifixion, it was against Roman law. A Roman conviction, sentencing, and execution had to be carried out by Rome. Secondly, God determined beforehand that Jesus' crucifixion, it was to be a group effort. And the idea here is all mankind was to have a hand in it. As he was dying for all of mankind, all mankind was culpable before God. Now, do you remember the, uh, the movie, The Passion of Christ? And there was that big controversy, who crucified Christ? The Jews were a little bit upset at the movie because it was making them look bad. Rome was a little bit upset. Everybody was upset. Well, you should be upset because you all killed the Messiah. And the idea was we all had a part of that 
you were there, I was there, if you will. Why? It wasn't that we were administering the punishment. That was the father to the son. That was the punishment that we should have had. But the reason that he was nailed to the cross was because of my sin and because of your sin, because of the sin of all humanity. And so this would need to be a work both Jew and Gentile, Jews and Rome, would need to be involved here. In Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Over at verse 7 and 8 now, the Jews answered him, We have a law. According to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Now, the only way that you can be more afraid is if you're afraid to begin with. And what's he afraid of? I really believe what he's afraid of. Yeah, there's the Jews, but he's not really afraid of the Jews. I think he's sick of trying to be manipulated, of them trying to manipulate him. But I don't really believe that he's afraid of the Jews because he never had a problem killing Jews in the past. What is he afraid of? I really think he's afraid of his conscience. I mean, to look the Lord Jesus Christ into his eye and to not deny the Lord Jesus Christ, even to kill him out of your life, there's going to be fear. Everybody who has ever denied Jesus Christ, there was, they, they had to overcome that, that fear because we know there's that conviction of the Holy Spirit, but there's the reality of truth and the proof of who Christ is, especially, again, as you're looking at him in the eye. And so Pilate is operating here on fear. That's why he keeps trying to push him off. When you've got Christ standing before you and you're denying him, then you don't want to be the one who sentences him to death. He, because of fear, he was trying to put it off on the Jews. So far, Jesus has been accused of threatening to destroy the temple, being an evildoer, perverting the nation, forbidding Jews to pay taxes, stirring up the people, and making himself a king. Now they are all whittled down to one charge. And this one charge is the only charge that is true. Again, in verse 7, he made himself the son of God. Now, in order for something to be proved as true, there must be witnesses. Well, that's what John, the Apostle John, has been doing in this gospel. He's been showing us witness after witness after witness. There's the witness of the Word of God. There's the witness of the signs and the wonders. There's the witness of the words of Jesus Christ. And he's been going through these, and he will continue to go through these point by point by point. But, again, if it's going to be a fair trial, there must be witnesses, so we can review some of these witnesses. First one, if you want to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you want to prove that anybody is the Son of a person, the best thing to do would be to get the Father. So the first witness would be the Father. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it was that time when the Lord was baptized. And this is really important. When Jesus came up out of the water... What did that voice from heaven say? It was the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is in, again in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus comes up out of the water and they hear that voice. Well, it was an important point to be made 
something that was not only going to carry the Lord through, but something that we would look back on as well. But also, it was that which the enemy was going to use that concept as a point of attack. Is he really the Son of God? Well, the Jews are trying to figure that out. Is he really the Son of God? Now it's presented to Pilate. Is he really the Son of God? Well, it was one of the means by which the devil used to attack Christ when he was tempting him in the wilderness. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4. Now keep in mind, you've got Jerusalem here, you've got the wilderness, and then you've got the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized. He's now in the wilderness. The, the, the father had just proclaimed him to be his son. And now what does the devil do? In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, if, what does the devil try to do? He tries to sow doubt. If you really are the son of God, let these stones be turned to bread. Now that's important because Jesus is in his full humanity. Now, where is it that in many places in our life, but one of the places in our lives that we can become weak, that we can lose clarity of mind, is if we don't eat for a while. I mean, just this natural reaction of your body not receiving nourishment. You get lightheaded, you get dizzy, maybe forgetful, whatever it might be. Well, that's what Jesus is experiencing here. He's not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil is saying, if you are the son of God, and really the temptation is, you know, to command that these stones be turned to bread. If you really were the son of God, if God really loved you, and and the devil's probably said this to you, would he really allow you to be out here in the wilderness? Would he really allow you to be starving to death as you are out here? Would he really allow you to get to that weak point? Now, we've all had that thought. If God really loved me, would he really allow me to go through these things? If God really cared for me, would I be experiencing this trial right now? And again, it's all for the purpose of sowing doubt. And the devil doesn't let up. In verse 5, then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, excuse me, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. If you're really the son of God, would God allow harm to come to you? If you're really the son of God, prove it. And this is the devil's means of proving it. And people can say to you, if you're really a son of God, if you're really a Christian, would God really allow hard things, difficult days to come into your life? Well, we know that he does. And so for Christ... It was just before these temptations, and I had to have to believe that Jesus in his humanity was referring back to verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And see, the validation of your salvation is what goes before you in every trial and in every difficulty. It's that which you should always be able to refer back to, not just intellectually referring back to, but I'm talking about in that time when you're weak. I'm talking about the time when you're being tempted, you're being stretched to the very ends of what you're able to endure, and the only thing you have to hold on to is that I'm his beloved son and whom he is well pleased. And it's that which got Christ through, it's that which will get us through. So we have the first witness, and the first witness is the father. 
And the father has bore witness that truly this is his son. He did it once more in the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Remember, he was with Moses and Elijah. And all three of them are standing there. And it's as if God said, of these three, that's my son. That is my son, hear him. There was Moses, representative of the law. There was Elijah, representative of the prophets. But it's Christ who we are to hear. Because without Christ, you're not going to understand the other guys. You're, you're not going to make sense of what the other guys have to say. And so as far as what the father had to say, validated. Secondly, what does the defendant have to say for himself? Well, Jesus Christ referred to himself as being God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am, that I am statement refers back to the burning bush. But the idea was, is that those who were standing before him, the Jews, they understood, well, if you're not God, then that was a blasphemous statement. Because what did they do? They took up rocks. What was the penalty for blasphemy, for calling yourself God? Stoning. And so these men fully believed that he referred to himself as God. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 14.9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Then there's the witness of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he's got a long... You know, when you go up there on the stand, you know, there's some people that they just go and ask a couple of questions. Some people will go for a matter of days. Holy Spirit's been testifying for over 2,000 years and continues to do so in the hearts and souls of God's people. In John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Then there's the angels in heaven, Luke chapter 1. And behold... Uh, verses 31 and 32, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, in your womb, and bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The next witness, the next witness, is what they refer to in the courtroom as a hostile witness. So we have the witness, this next witness, a hostile witness. This would be the demons. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, And suddenly they cried out demons, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? You have come here to torment us before our time. Same instant, this different gospel, Mark 3, 11, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. And then there's a witness of the disciples, those who spent three years with him, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so there's plenty of witnesses that can attest to this charge. Finally, they came up with a charge that is true. Pilate could care less about this charge, but something's really sticking in Pilate's crawl here. Again, verse 19, look at verse 8. Therefore, Pilate heard that saying, and he was more afraid. This has really got to him, because why? Well, Pilate's now thinking, what if this is true? What if I have God standing before, and he probably wouldn't say God, but he would probably think 
a God standing before me. See, he's heard of the signs and wonders. He's heard of the miracles and the things that Jesus has been able to do. And those things are witnesses and they lend towards who Christ is. Pilate, make no mistake about it, has heard about these things in detail. He'd be a fool to, fool to not know what's going on. Remember, Jesus' triumphal entry was only days before. He was well aware of that because there's all the Jews, young men, Jewish young men of military age, probably close to two million that are in Jerusalem. And now we have this great leader that is entering in. The people think that this leader is going to lead the people in rebellion and expel Rome. Rome would have been on to that. And so I would imagine he's looked into his background. Now, all of a sudden, these things are starting to come together. And then you have Roman belief. The Romans did believe that their gods would assume human form and inhabit the earth or come down from the earth from time to time with mankind. So all of a sudden, this is hitting him exactly where he lives. Verse 9 and 10. He went into the paratorium and said to Jesus... Where are you from? So just think of that. He's got this conviction. What if this is true? And he runs to Christ. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? I, have a ma- you know, I don't think Pilate's doing this from the position of authority. I think he's doing this from the position of desperation. Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? So you have to look at this. Why would the Lord not speak to him? The reason he's not speaking to him is because he's already given him the truth of who he is. Pilate was not willing to accept that. We saw that earlier in chapter 18, verse 36 through 37. And there's a basic biblical concept here. If you do not act upon a truth that God has given you, he's not going to give you another truth, I mean, or a conflicting truth. He's going to give truth truth stands alone. And Jesus said that he is a king of a kingdom, but his kingdom is not of this world. And so there, it's veiled a little bit, but he is speaking of his deity. It's clear to us, but to Pilate. And now really what this is happening, Pilate is probably putting this together with Jesus being a God and him being a king over a kingdom. And now this is becoming bigger and bigger by the moment. And again, just think of where Pilate is getting this truth from. He's getting it straight from the mouth of the Lord. Have you ever sat in a Bible study and been convicted? Have you ever read the Bible and been convicted? He's hearing it straight from Jesus Christ, and it's crushing his heart. And so Jesus has given him the truth. If Pilate would have responded to the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 18, he wouldn't be standing before the Lord in fear right now. Just think of that. He'd be standing before the Lord in perfect peace. If you don't know Jesus, but you'll never have peace. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power. Now, when you see power here, that word, you could write next to it, authority. You could have no authority at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What authority does government really have? How does it relate to God? It's obvious that government has authority. God is the ultimate authority. And we see our government, most governments are very godless. How does all this work together? How and why does God relate to and through even a secular government? Look at our nation. 
our nation, it wasn't necessarily a Christian nation at its inception, but it took biblical morals, and our nation was established on proper biblical morals. The Ten Commandments used to be just about in every courtroom. Back around the turn of the 1900s, they were in the front page of every law book. The laws of our nation were built upon the Ten Commandments. Now that we've taken the Ten Commandments out of our legal system, we don't really have a clue what is right and what is wrong, what is legal and illegal, and everything's just been pretty much turned upside down. But it's not how it used to be. It's God's desire that, well, we saw it when Israel came out of, uh, out of well, they entered into the promised land, remember? They were to have a judge. And a judge was to receive from God and make decisions based upon the Lord. He was not the priest. That was something separate as far as, if you will, religion was separate. But a relationship with God was still essential for the proper running and and conducting of governmental affairs. And so that was what God's desire was for Israel. Well, if you look back at our nation, so seems to me that's what God's desire was for our nation as well. When we went back to Washington, I believe it was in 2010, not only do you see scripture, not only do you see the commandments, but it's kind of interesting, they're carved in stone. They're put there permanent. And there was a reason for that. It wasn't because they didn't have paper. It wasn't because they didn't have printing. It was the idea was this is to be permanent. This is to be etched in to the fabric of what this nation is. Well, you say, Pastor Mike, what about separation of church and state? Well, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, it reads as follows. You tell me if the founding fathers had it upon their minds that there would be separation of church and state. Listen, the First Amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of press or of the right of people to peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for uh, redress of grievances. Where does it say separation of church and state? I don't remember the date. I think it was in the 1950s. A judge determined or It wasn't the Supreme Court. I think they validated it, but a judge determined that this meant that there is to be a separation of church and state. What the founding fathers, and it's very obvious, because, you know, you look at this First Amendment, and we have, you know, the religious aspect. I'll talk about that in a minute. We have freedom of speech, freedom of press, the right to gather together, um, to, to, to peacefully assemble, and to petition the government. All of those, the society pretty much holds dear. It's interesting, the one that they don't. It's interesting, the one that they not try to change, the one that they have changed. And so our founding fathers, they didn't want government's hand in religion. They wanted the free expression of religion. And I have to believe that they had to understand the concept, even if they weren't religious, of how God would work through denominations and then through these denominations into the people's lives. And what I mean by that is Consider, why are we tax-exempt? Why would a church be tax-exempt? It makes no sense. I mean, until I tell you what I'm going to tell you. But 
why would they care that we would be tax exempt? It was because when this country was established, they understood the value of the church. They understood if people had an issue, the church was going to take care of them. They understand if people were hungry, then the church was going to feed them. They understood the value of having a church. Now, again, I don't know to what degree they understood God in all of this, but we understand this is God's agency into the lives of the people of the land. And they understood as a church was blessed, then a church would in turn be a blessing. And when a church was blessing the people, then the nation was going to be blessed. Government, keep your hands out of the church. Because they knew as all the government was going to do was to mess it all up. Because they messed everything else all up. And so they allowed the church to be tax-exempt because in their mindset, the church was coming alongside of the government and was ministering or taking care of the people. And so that was the idea. And for some reason, well, nowhere in the Constitution do you say, see the words separation of church and state. It just simply does not exist except for in people's imaginations. It's obvious what the forefathers' ideas were, but they also recognized one other point. They also recognized that there was going to be the religion... Now, they wanted the government to stay out of the church, but they did recognize that the church was going to have influence in government. And for the founding fathers, that's okay. They, they didn't have a problem with that. The Declaration of Independence of the 13 Colonies in Congress, dated July 4, 1776, says, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume amongst the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to, be, uh, to, to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What he's saying here is, we consider these things to be very obvious, that all men are created equal. Didn't say they evolved. He said, now, I know that Darwin's philosophies haven't entered in yet, and you can say, well, science has developed these things, but they're saying, no, this is very obvious. All men are created equal, and they are endowed or enabled by their creator. And so in this declaration of independence, they acknowledge God, they acknowledge that man has been created, and they acknowledge a creator. He has been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so God, God is going to enter in, but the government, you don't enter in until to people's relationship with God. Does the Bible speak against separation of church and state? Well, in actuality, as we look at the scriptures, we're able to draw from the scriptures, it's impossible to do that. It's impossible to separate church and state. It can't be done. Why? Well, we just celebrated communion. And we, we had the body of the Lord, and we had the blood of the Lord, and what did we do? We consumed that. Just as we believe, it's the idea is consumption, and it becomes part of who we are. And so if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian, your Christianity, your beliefs, are going to have a profound effect upon everything that you do, 
everything that you think, everything that you say. You can't separate it. It's impossible. How do you separate somebody's beliefs? And if you would try to squash your beliefs, how could you possibly stand for anything else? How can you stand for something you don't believe in? The, the, the people that stormed the beach at Normandy, they had strong beliefs so that they would face enemy fire and push through. If they didn't believe in what they were doing, do you really think they would have gotten out of the boat? They wouldn't. That's what the problem was in Vietnam. We didn't believe in that. You know, the, the general population, where I think we're at, like the, I think today is the 41st anniversary of, uh, uh, of the war in Vietnam. It's funny that you didn't hear anything about that. But it's the 40, 41st, I believe, anniversary of the war in Vietnam. Unfortunately, the people didn't believe in that war. Well, you saw the result of that and what a mess that was. If somebody's going to be all in, they've got to first believe. You've got to grasp the hearts of the people, then they're able to do it. And so the Bible says it's impossible. It was one of the arguments against President Bush and his Christianity and General Ashcroft that their beliefs would have influence upon their leadership of our nation. Well, of course they would. They would have to. You would expect them to. At the establishment of Israel, again, that was the whole idea for the judge, that his beliefs and the word of God would guide the decisions that he would make and the rule over the people would be led by God through this means. So we have the reality of the kingdom of God and the government of man, and we need to see and understand God's view of the blending of the two. Again, in verses 10 and 11, Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power or authority to crucify you and authority to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power, no authority at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. We see this power or authority that the government has comes from God. And so all governments in in existence the authority, the legitimate authority they have that has been rendered to them for God's purpose. Now, it would have to be that way. It would only make sense that it's that way because we're told in Romans 8.8, all things are working together for the good. And if these authorities are apart from the control of God, then there's things out there that aren't working according to the good because they're working according to the desires of men. But all things are working together for the desires of God. Not that all of these governments are doing good things. Some of them are doing really bad things. But these things are working together for the good of what God wants to accomplish. The things that the Antichrist does is going to be working together for the good. Because we see God's plan and how God uses him. So... The idea, I mean, with all the Bible studies that we have done and, and all, it, to get a good picture on this, it'd be obvious that you would turn to Romans chapter 13. When anything political, Romans chapter 13 just breaks it down very clearly for us all. Now, keep in mind, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Nero is the king. Whatever you think of this president, the past president, or any president, Nero was a lunatic. He was insane. He was crazy. Keep that in mind as I read these, these verses. Let every soul, that means everybody, be subject to the governing authorities. And he's, Paul, don't you know this guy's wacko? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. This isn't Paul's opinion. This is the word of God. 
for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Well, part of the thing, what Nero was doing is he was persecuting the Jews. What did the Jews just had done? They rejected Messiah. And this is part of a prophecy that Christ gave them that their lives were going to be made miserable because they rejected their Messiah. And it's been that way for the past 2,000 years. And so Nero was used by the Lord. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. So you're leaving church tonight. You're driving home. You're going down Philadelphia, and you come to Archibald, and you're going to be going past Archibald, and it's a red light, but you decide, God told me I'm not stopping for that red light. And so you go through the red light. Well, that's illegal. And it says here, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, because God wants you to stop at red lights, because that way people don't crash and die. And he says, and those who result or resist will bring judgment unto themselves. Well, what's the police officer that sees you? He's going to pull you over, and you're going to receive judgment for your, your due actions. And who brought that upon you? You brought it upon yourself. And so we can bring this to a... Now, there, there's no problem with peacefully protesting and coming up against government and all of these things, because our Constitution, we just read it, gave us the ability... It's legal. You're allowed to do that. You're not resisting the government in speaking against the government because the government has given you that that ability to do so. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works. They're not a terror. They're not supposed to be a terror to the church, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. Remember what Peter did when he lopped off, or what he did was lop off Malchus's ear? Jesus told him, hey, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. If you wield the sword in an illegal manner, which Peter did, then the sword of the government is going to come upon you. Peter, you cut a guy's ear off, the government's going to come, and they're going to arrest you. Instead, what, what did Jesus do? He fixed the ear so that there's no trial, there's no need. But if you live by the sword, you will perish by the sword. Why is that? If you do evil, if you live by the sword, be afraid. He does not bear the sword. That God's minister, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What's your conscience? Your conscience is your ear for the Holy Spirit. So I'm to be a good citizen, not just because I'm going to get arrested if I don't, but also because this is what God has called me to do, who God has called me to be. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We've about a month. About, well, about a month out from National Tax Day, we all paid our income tax. And I hate, you know, you're, you work and you look at the government and, and, and you have to write the check because God said you had to write the check. And so we wrote the check and we paid our taxes. And sometimes it can just get at you and all, but this is what God said to do and we did it. And then the other day my wife said, we just got a check back from the IRS. Why? We gave them too much and they gave us some back. They're nice people. Really, God is good. There was a time, and you tell me, does this time still exist? 
But there was a time in the realm of apologetics and the realm of giving a reason for the hope that was in us, a reason for the existence of Christianity, that you could point to the church or you could point to the Christian and say, look at these people. Their Bible says that they'll have changed lives. The Bible says that they're going to submit to the government. And the Bible says that they're to be extraordinary citizens. And look at these people and the difference that they make. Look how good these people are and plugged in, even a government that can be contrary to them. That was a proof for the existence of God. Unfortunately, I don't know if you can use that proof today. Matter of fact, the church seems to be more rebellious than anybody else. The second question that should logically flow is, what are we to do then if the government is run by an Adolf Hitler, a Saddam Hussein? What if they make it illegal for the church to exist or to preach the word? What then is a believer to do? Jesus answered, again in verse 11, you could have no power at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. If the government was just given power, then he could legitimately do what he wants. But we saw the government has not been given power, but authority. Received authority by its very nature, it involves responsibility to the giver of the authority. And so those people who wield their authority contrary to God will be in danger of judgment from God. Now, if God has appointed the governing authority, told us to be submitted to him, don't you think God's going to take care of things? We all want to stand up and we all want to work change and this and that. And, you know, in the realm that we're able to do, we need to do. But all in all, it's not time to take up arms. We're not to take up arms. If we do that, then we're like Peter. Because what did Peter do? He's called to preach the gospel, and he's cutting people's ears off. How are they going to hear the gospel? How many ears have we cut off? No, we're just simply to be obedient to what God has called us to do, to go forth and to make disciples. Unfortunately, the church today has gotten so political, it's not making disciples. It's quick to yell and scream at a politician, but not to share the gospel with a lost sinner. And we've lost focus, and we've lost... We've lost what God has set before us, and we've done so to our own demise. Now, received authority, received authority is accountable to the one who has given it. Now, in our election system, the one who is placed in office, he has been given authority. Now, we know this is by God, but by the people, God has used the means by which uh, people vote and make decisions within the, the, uh, the voting booth. Well, we elected a governor. And that governor, he abused his authority, and we threw him out. It's God's mean of getting rid of him. Remember Gray Davis? Gray Davis was impeached, and he was removed from office. And so there's means to do these things if it be the will of God. And so are you, do you have enough faith to trust God in these things? Do you have enough faith? We, we look at how, how, how bad things are across the political landscape, uh, the, in the political landscape across the world. Do you still trust it in God? It's a great time to exercise faith. I'm not saying ignore it, be ignorant of it, and not participate in it, but don't rise up and change it contrary to the will of God or try and change it contrary to the will of God. James Montgomery Boyce said, God-given authority enhances human government, but it also limits it, for it is an authority bound by the moral nature of God from whom it comes. 
let me ask you this. The real Adolf Hitler, have you seen him lately? How about Saddam Hussein? I mean, sooner or later, every evil leader that has ever existed, he's gotten his due or will get his due. And then Acts chapter eighteen twenty, and they called them and commanded them not to preach at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, "Whatever is right in the sight of God, to listen to whatever is right in the sight of God, to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard." So, when they are commanding us to do something, the government commanding us to do something contrary to what God has told us to do. It's then that we follow the Lord rather than man. So Jesus said, Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now keep in mind, Pilate, Pilate is fearful at this time. Pilate has sinned as human governments do. The problem is, the one who delivered him has the greater sin because Pilate's sinning. He's not understanding everything completely. There's conviction. He's trying to figure out what to do, but the Jews, they transgressed. The Jews knew exactly what they were doing, and he's saying that they have the greater sin, yet they had the word of God. They had the scriptures that pointed towards who Christ is, and so that being the case, think of the responsibility that we have When there's an election, think of the responsibility that we have because we know if we come in in, in contrast or if we come in, um, if we come up against the Lord, then we've got the greater responsibility. When it's time to vote and we don't vote, we have the greater responsibility. Uh, Not voting is a sin. Because God uses, it's just, we just saw in Romans chapter 13, that the governing authority is put there by the hand of God. Who's the hand of God? We are. And, and he doesn't just pick somebody up and plop them in office. They go through an election. And how does God move and how does God operate? He operates through the Christian going into the, the, the voting booth, as I've said before, with a voter's guide and a Bible, and making the determination of the will of God and putting those people into office. And man, it can be really hard to make the decision because it seems like you're voting between Satan and the Antichrist sometimes. But nonetheless, we need to be there. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to be active in our community. We have a responsibility to support the government as much as they seek after the Lord, but not come up against them unless they're completely contrary to the Lord. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Trust in God. Trust in God. Regardless of what the political landscape is, regardless of what's going on across the world, Jesus has overcome the world. And Jesus Christ would be our Lord. And that being the case, we fight from the standpoint of victory. We're more than conquerors in everything that we see, all that goes on. This last week, another bomb. Another bomb went off. I guarantee you, in the next couple of weeks, another one will go off somewhere else, somewhere, somehow, some way. These things, well, as we read to the end, we see these things are going to get worse. Keep your eyes upon the prize. God's working all of these things out. Conduct your life in faith. And I guarantee you, the Lord will watch over you and we will celebrate a great victory in Jesus Christ. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us these things that were delivered so long ago, but are so pertinent to our days. And I pray, Father, that we would embrace them. 
Lord, as you have been called us to believe them, I pray, Father, that we would display that belief through our outward manner of living. And Father, as we do, we just pray that you would be glorified and your word would be shown as truth. And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight. I pray, Father, for the things that we've discussed, that you would make them, again, very real and very doable and practical in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, Sunday night, we're going to be having our agape feast. I encourage you to come out and join us. There's no cost for it. And then we'll be watching our video on the way of the master. Sunday morning, we'll be in um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, where we see Jesus is better than Moses. Um, Couple study, men's, um, um, what is it? Golf tournament, that's it. I encourage you to sign up. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week.